it went straight down the middle. Then it started. Welcome to another edition of For the Good of the Game and Bruce Devlin. I always like it when we get these younger guests on. Yeah. And uh, this lady, uh, among other things, I mean, obviously we'll hear about her great uh, uh, golf record, but uh, she started one of the most iconic traditions at a major championship that has ever been, and I'm sure we'll hear all about that as well. That's right. Well, you know something? She's won 34 golf show, professional golf tournaments around the world, and she's, she's won five majors. And just to give you an idea of how much she likes the majors, those five majors, she won by 24 shots. So... <laughs> When she get, when she gets a chance to win a major, man, it's all over, and we're we want to welcome Amy Alcott joining us today. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, thank you, Bruce and Mike. Great to be here with you. Love the game. Happy to talk about the game. <laughs> yeah, and what a game you had. <laughs> yeah, well. Oh, you still probably do. Yeah, you know, I got some new clubs recently that are, you know, you finally have to uh, kind of. Uh, turn the turn the corner and go with something lighter and graphite and all yeah. of that stuff, so you don't you know screw yourself in the ground. But, uh, <laughs> but I've got some new irons that I actually am hitting pretty good and hitting longer. So um, you know, it kind of renews your faith and your ability a little bit. There you go, no question. Well, Amy, as we've talked about, we're here to tell your story, and we always start at the beginning. I know you were born in Kansas City, Missouri, but you weren't there long, were you? I wasn't there very long. My uh, father was in a dental school there at a very fine college there, UMKC, and um, he had um, uh, three kids. We, I was the baby. And, um, so he kind of hightailed it out of there. He had a thing about teeth. He had a degree in orthodontics and dentistry and, uh, he loved sports. And so did my mother. My dad was the, uh, you know, like the New York city handball champion. Uh, they still play handball even, you know, uh, all around, but, uh, uh, he grew up in the streets of New York, and my mother played tennis. And so, you know, the winters in Kansas City probably maybe might have been conducive to starting a dental practice, but not raising three kids that he was kind of athletic-minded. Ne- neither one of them played golf. I'll say oh. that up front. Hmm. And they never – my dad played a couple of times just to kind of – when I wanted to go play. and um but uh, yeah, he hightailed it out of there and moved to um, rented a little house in Beverly Hills, and uh, started a his first dental practice, which is right across the street now. When I think of my childhood, going with him on Saturdays to um, his dental practice to put braces on kids, uh, it was right across almost literally where the new SoFi Stadium is, where they're playing football. Mm. Um, So uh, he kind of got out of there pretty quick, and he bought a – I'll just keep rambling here. He bought a – No problem. Originally, uh, we moved out of the rental house and bought the house that I lived in for most of my childhood, which ultimately, over the years, 
uh, became the Alcott Golf and Country Club. (laughs) (laughs) He bought this house for $19,000 from an old-time movie actress. Um, Dolores Del Rio was her name. I think she used to dance around like Carmen Miranda with the fruit on her head. Uh, I don't ever, I, you know, I was a baby, so I don't remember meeting her. But my dad bought this house that he could probably not afford. It had a paddle tennis court in the back and a swimming pool. And and um, so that's the house I grew up in. And yeah. that's my my venture out to the West, to the West. And I'm sure glad he did that. So, Bruce, we, we've, you know, we've, this is our 52nd a golf great that we've interviewed. I'm not sure if I remember anyone else saying that their folks didn't play the game. Not that I can remember. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty unusual. So my start became, I was a child really of television, watching all the sports shows on TV, the cartoons, and then these golf shows would come on on Saturday. And Probably sparked my interest because I was kind of a little tomboy and played with all the boys on the street, baseball and everything. And these golf shows would come in. CBS Golf Classic, Big Three Golf, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. (laughs) And I used to watch these shows on TV and, you know, from like Billy Casper from Greece, Kermit (laughs) Zarley from Firestone Country Club, Carrie Middlecoff, you know. And there really weren't any women. Uh, I think they had one show, possibly with uh, Babe Zaharias, but I'm not sure. But um, anyway, I asked my dad if he knew anything about it. And he had bought my mom a set of golf clubs with these burgundy shafts, thinking that maybe she'd take up golf. I don't know when he got those for her. But I was eight years old, and he cut one down for me about, 18 inches long and put black duct tape on it gave me two golf balls and I went out to the front yard and started pushing these balls around in the sprinkler heads in the front lawn and um, trying to emulate and trying to whack the ball and he says oh you gotta use we gotta get some plastic ones if you want to do that (laughs) and uh, that front yard I started to sink soup cans Campbell's soup cans in the in the bottom we had three cups um i had that little eight iron i used to like chip and putt all over the place with it and chip out of the ivy we eventually my dad dug out the dirt and we had a sand trap we used to go down he'd take me down to this place fisher lumber and we'd go down and get every two weeks we get sand because i used to whack all the sand out and break the window I did, <laughs> and then I'd have this uh, um, uh, dr- kind of over the driveway, and then I'd blade one, and then I'd knock the window out or something. So we eventually had to put up a whole huge. My dad, you know, he he saw this like passion of mine, this intense passion, and he didn't want me to like go without, and so he uh, put up this huge. Uh, net and all i had to do was string it across the front of the house and the entire neighborhood thought the alcots were fumigating every day because huge like i mean it was huge it was 30 feet tall and all i had to do was 
I mean, the extent that he went to, to do, you know, to, yeah, to that do was great. <laughs> then I met uh, coming back from a drive-in family movie in the back of the car. I saw this thing ten o'clock at night. Walter Keller's Golf Shop on twenty-one thirty-eight Westwood Boulevard, just down the street from UCLA campus. First golf discounter in America. And I said to my mom, I want to go there. You know, I'm like a nine-year-old kid. She took me in there, and I started, went to the back, and I saw these nets set up with these mirrors, kind of the mirrors, of course. You could look, watch your golf swing, kind of the precursor to video. And um, you'd stand on these mats and whack balls. And I got on the carpet, and this man walked by, and he said, Get back on. I just put that carpet in. It cost me a thousand bucks. Get back on the mat here and show me your swing. And I had this little flat swing that I kind of developed. And I took this swing and he looked at me and looked at my mom and said, uh, wow, she's got some power. She's a little racehorse. (laughs) I'm Walter Keller. I own this place. And um, he talk he says this is my daughter amy and my mother said i'm lee alcott and uh can can she get some lessons and he says i'd be glad to give her some lessons you know and uh, he was a real entrepreneur and the first golf discounter and had this shop that was an institution in los angeles i mean anybody on the west side any of these people from the fanciest clubs like L.A. Country Club and Riviera and Bel Air and Brentwood Country Club to, you know, the public courses, the par threes, they'd all buy their equipment at Walters. Hmm. Uh, I developed a relationship with him, and and uh, my mother bought me six lessons for $36, and that was oh. really the start of learning really how to swing a golf club. Interesting. And that's uh, I'm not letting you guys get a word in edgewise, but no, that's that's what we're here for. We want to listen to you, not us. (laughs) Okay. Well, so that was the beginning with Walter and the start of my connection to the game of real connection to the game of golf. And he was pretty much my, although I seeked out over the years other people. The other unusual thing, other than my parents playing, was. He pretty much was my only teacher to the really? day he died. Oh, was he a member of one of the clubs there in yeah, uh, Los Angeles? Yeah, he was a member was? At, at Riviera. And when I, you know, um, which to me, my God, Riviera Country Club. And um, once time. a year, once I got was playing junior golf and developed really pretty good player, he would take me there once a year. And I'd be waiting outside with my little shoes, and he'd pick me up in this old beat-up Mercedes and drive me over there at 6 in the morning, and I'd play with these guys. And it was the highlight of my life to play an actual 18-hole course. And a good one, too. And a great one, yeah. Yeah. And so we weren't, obviously, my parents weren't golfers, and uh, so we uh, weren't members of a country club. And so I would wait in line as a junior golfer to get on the L.A. City golf courses. And they used to have a rule that here I was, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. They had a rule that you had to be 14 
years old to uh, to play the city golf courses. Now I don't really know what it is unless you can show them that you can play golf. But back then I would wait all day, put my name on a list, probably hit a thousand balls, chip and putt with the other kids and wait for my name to get called at three o'clock in the afternoon, hoping that I could go out with a group late in the afternoon. And knowing when I had to go up to that starter shed, there was a a wonderful uh, Afro-American man named Clyde that worked there. And I know he knew I wasn't 14. (laughs) And one day he said to me, he says, well, Miss Alcott, you can join the group on the tee. I said, well, I've only been waiting all day. He says, please tell me, how old are we today? <laughs> Great story. And I would say, well, Clyde, I'm 14. Or Mr. Clyde, I'm 14. Well, then step right up there and show them what you got. And so, you know, I look back on the my career and I think these were really the good times, you know. Uh the, the memories of that, wondering if you were even going to be able to, you had some jerk there saying, we know you're 11, you know, show me your ID or something like that. But it took a few of these things across, you know, that good breaks. And I don't know, it, uh, it's, it's a good memory. Yeah, it's, sure the, it's the Mr. Clydes of your life that can really make a difference, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, see junior golf the way it is today and the wonderful things that are going on in the game with like, I'm sure you've got a great programs down in Houston with, and first tee programs and, and everything trying to really encourage, you know, it's the lifeblood of the game, junior golf. And no doubt about it. So I'm, I'm grateful. I had nobody does it alone. I had some great encouragement. Like yeah. That. So, you know, you were still fairly young when you got exposed to Riviera and some probably some other nice places to play. You were seeing all sorts of famous people, maybe even playing with them. Were you old enough to really appreciate that at the time? Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pam and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about my albatross? Um, well, it, through my adventure from junior golf, I started when I was nine playing in the nine-hole division. Walter says, well, you got to start going out and competing. So I played in the Southern California Junior Golf Association, and over time, you know, competed. My mother drove me all over Southern California. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you. It's very similar to, um, in a way, to a Serena Williams, Venus Williams story of, you know, growing up in a city and and, uh, um, 
and, uh, you know, being passionate and having a committed parent who just, you know, would drive me to all these places and then whatever. But to, to kind of answer your question, once I got kind of, uh, went out with Walter to Riviera and I started winning all these junior golf tournaments. And then I started playing in these amateur tournaments and I was winning everything and everyone knew my name. You know, I started to, you know, get invited to, you know, golf courses and like with Walter and I'd, if I went to Riviera, Oh my God, uh, that was eye opening. I'd hit balls on the driving range next to Jim Backus, you know, who was, Uh, voice of mr magoo and mr uh uh his wife what was show gilligan's island thurston Thurston howell III with his wife lovey lovey (laughs) you probably uh, saw my friend there too dean martin dean martin was one of my original sponsors when i was getting ready to go on the tour um dean Walter went around to 15 different members of Riviera because I couldn't afford to do it. My parents couldn't. And uh, Dean Martin was one of my original sponsors, along with, uh, you know, Glenn Campbell. And Mm -hmm. uh, they all put up a thousand bucks a piece. You know, how many players get sponsored and actually make it? And I was able to pay my sponsors back after two years on the tour. Once I turned pro at 18 and, and had $386 after paying everybody else back. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to do this on my own. And so, um, but you did, I did, I did. And there was a wonderful group of, you know, all these people at Riviera, Peter Falk. And I used to putt with Rita Hayworth. I didn't even know who she was until my mother came and picked me up and all her beauty and elegance. And she'd watch me putt. And I mean, I have stories about all of these particular people. And the list goes on about the famous people out at these different clubs, you know. Yeah, did you did you ever play at Lakeside? Uh, I know they had a lot of the old movie stars there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I played there, you know, obviously a couple of times and played there once about 15 years ago with Jack Nicholson, uh, who loves the game. And, uh, you know, I played with more President Ford, uh, Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines when I was oh, there. there you go. Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I mean, I could go down a long list of, of, uh, of presidents and I used to play in an event years ago in the desert called the, uh, Betty Ford Invitational. And, um, I used to get paired with the president there. That was pretty Uh funny. And then years later, I'm in the desert and I ran into him when he wasn't president and quite old in a supermarket and he was looking for some bread and he had a guy with an earphone next to him and it would have taken some experience to know no he was the president of the united states and i said mr president i said uh what are you doing here in the middle of august it's only 116 uh. out <laughs> in colorado and he says oh well we're just here for a week and betty's home making some sandwiches and I'm looking for some bread. I said, well, this is really good. And he says, yeah, I think I'll stick with our 
favorite, you know, whatever. And he <laughs> said, I said to him, well, how are you playing? How's your golf game these days? And he says, oh, it's great. It's like much, much better. And I said, well, what are you doing? And he says, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just hitting fewer people. <laughs> so, um, and then we went to check out and I was roaming around and came back. He was checking out in front of me and this little gal looked like one of those diner scenes with the gal chewing gum, had no clue who he was. And I said, nice to see you, Mr. President. And then when he left with the guy with the walkie talkie, she says, who was he the president of? I said, <laughs> I, I don't even I'm want sorry. to be there. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was, yeah, that was Gerald Ford, the president of the United States. So uh. um, anyway, um, I don't know. All of these, all of these uh, stories just uh, are kind of, kind of, they, they form the backbone of your kind of your career and your life. It's all the people you meet and, Seeing Dean Martin out at Riviera competing, you know, playing golf out there, those guys, when I was hitting a thousand balls a day and he'd have his gambling games going on out there and he'd be in a cart. And uh, I was in some of those games, by the way. I'm sure at Riviera where they used to tee oh, up yes. for three. I, oh, yeah. yes. Was Barry Jekyll with, was Barry Jekyll around? Yeah. It not, he was there, but most of the time it was Artie Anderson and Dean yeah. and, and his buddy from Chicago and yeah. Lou, Lou Rosanova. from uh, Savannah. Right. So you were right. in those. Did you guys play for some pretty big money? Uh, well, I suppose on a relative basis. I mean, from, you know, the money I was making on the tour, if I could. You know, if I could get those guys for a couple hundred bucks, that was a pretty nice way to start the week. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that was a – Dean used to drive, have those fancy velvet shoes, and his uh, hair was usually had a little tinge of purple in it. Do you remember that? And he'd drive that fancy Gia yeah. car. And anyway. Yeah. Fun, times. Of, fun times, fun times. Yes. Yeah, D Dean was uh, was Bruce's uh, clam bake partner up at the Crosby for a number of years, wasn't he, Bruce? Yeah, ten years. He and I played the uh, Crosby for ten years. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. He's a he was a crooner. real, real the crooner of yeah. yeah, probably one of the best that ever decided to sing a song. Really. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, he he loved it, and so. Well, we could talk. Uh, we could talk celebrity golf probably for hours, just uh, based on the folks that you guys have both. Uh, oh, been I'm privileged sure to come Bruce across. Bruce has probably played with tons of people. Yeah, yeah. over the Jack years, Lemon and all these people. Yeah. So, Amy, tell us about some of your junior golf. Junior I mean, golf. you you were you were a you were a tough competitor back then when you were you know, just a 12- and 13-year-old girl winning all yeah. the tournaments. Yeah. Well, as I said, I was lucky had to have a mom that drove me all over. And I was very lucky to have a mom in a way that didn't play golf because she would let me out at golf tournaments. And, and um, 
let me, uh, you know, uh, just tell me, you know, she didn't care what I shot. No matter what I shot, she still loved me. So she wasn't obsessed. She wasn't a sports parent, one of these people that's like makes a kid want to turn away from sports, a little league yeah. parent. So I was very, very lucky. And so I got all that experience and then slowly started to, so I must have won like 130 junior golf tournaments in the Southern California area. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and back in 1973, no, before that, 71 to Dallas and played in the U.S. Junior Girls Championship. And I was just talking uh, and, and on Cape Cod this past week. I saw my longtime friend, rival, going way back to that era. H.S. Yeah. And I met her in the first match, in the very first match. I was 13 years old, and she was 15. And she said, you know, you you had just kind of gotten into the juniors, I mean, national type of stuff. Because Walter Keller says, you're not going to know how good you are. You can win everything around Southern California, but you're not going to know how good you are until you play national junior golf. So I went back there, and I had Hollis three down after nine holes. And she was telling the story of where the hell was this? did this junior come Kid from? Kid come from. Kid from <laughs> California, you know, with the ponytail or whatever. We still talk about it. And so she ended up beating me on the 17th hole. I, I took the gag a little bit, I'm sure. But <laughs> that was the beginning of a long friendship. And then years of playing U.S. Junior Championships. And um, I met her again uh, in one of the best at Augusta Country Club in 19... That was 71. 71. That was yes. 71. We yeah. both in, in match and in, in stroke play. Shaw had shot three under par at Augusta Country Club, right across from Augusta, um, uh, three under par 70s, and tied and went to the 19th hole. And our uh, marshal was a great guy who was kind of a great writer of the time, and uh, Frank Hannigan with the USGA. He marshaled our match, and he says, when we got done, that is, he's marshaled some pretty amazing matches in his time. And, that was man or woman, pro or junior. That was like one of the more to have the kids shoot three under par and go to the 19th hole. And then she, again, she made a long putt on me. But then in 1973, I ended up winning at Somerset Hills Country Club when I was yeah. 17. And um, I won my match. And, um, you know, these are kind of great friendships that are and relationships, you know. I won the state amateur in 73 at Pebble Beach. Um, set a course record there at the time. But just recently got a phone call the other day from the pro at Pebble Beach because uh, they never kept track of the women's course records, only men's. And he says, well, we understand from the old pro years ago that you, in 19 19- that you had the course record. And I said, yes, I shot uh, 69 in the qualifying. He says, well, that beat back then Babe Zaharias's record at Pebble Beach. And so um, he says, well, a young player named Rose Zhang um, 
just shot 64. Oh my. And I said, well, was it from the, I said, was it from the men's tees? Because mine was, you know, the, like the 1973 qualifying. And um, anyway, I was, I was blown away and I'm thinking, of course, my course record's been broken. You know, it's like, it's something you're proud of for many years. And then, a great player, great players come along and they beat it. So that's what happens in the game. And and I'm glad to see that, you know, the talent is so great that, you know. That's amazing. Uh, so that was the junior golf. Right after that, I had no one college scholarship offer when I was 18 to go to Dartmouth and play on the men's golf team. It was just kind of pre-Title Nine. Yeah, right. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. what do I want to go to? Walter, one again, said, you know, you're a little racehorse. You should go out on the pro tour. And everybody with the USGA that knew me, PJ Boatwright and everybody was saying, oh, you got to go to college. You're too young to turn pro at 18. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I turned pro and barely qualified in 1975, qualifying January at Kendall Lakes. Uh, they had like uh, 70 people and took 10 and I, I gagged, you know, I more <laughs> pressure in the qualifying than anything. And I, yeah. I ended up uh, qualifying and uh, went out after that. And I told my mom, you know, it's all downhill from here. Getting through that qualifying school was everything. I was never so nervous in my life. And then three weeks later, I won my very first tournament, which ended up either being the fastest win in LPGA history or one of them. I, I don't know. Got to be, yeah. yeah. Third tournament, right? Third tournament. Yeah. Made a 25-footer on the last hole at uh, Pasadena Golf Club at the Orange Blossom Classic in yep. St. Petersburg. And the guy, when I got done, said, well, Arnold Palmer won one of his first tournaments here as well. <laughs> so I knew that after that, that I'd kind of found my bailiwick, but I was out there. It was not easy playing against what I thought was a bunch of old ladies, you know, because <laughs> I was such a kid and yeah. people used to say, when are you going to be in your twenties? I mean, it felt like forever, you know, for me to get into my twenties. Yeah. And so, you know, when I was 22, I'd gone to Montreal. I won the Canadian Open in Montreal. I uh, eagled just memories, eagling. It was the first year the Canadian de Maurier was a major. Uh, that was my first major. And then the very next year won the U.S. Open at 23, which was very young at the time. So, Yeah, well, let's come back to those. I, I, I do want to ask you one thing back when you sure. were an amateur. Was there an opportunity uh, – to get on the Curtis Cup team back in 1972? Yes, and I was never chosen. And I don't know why. I can't imagine mm. why, given the no. record that you I was, I was crazy. I, I was an alternate. And uh, one of... Um, I was made an alternate. It was at San Francisco Golf Club. Too young, see? Yeah. Probably. I'll bet, I'll bet you that's why they did it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but uh, I was, you know, I'd never won the U.S. Amateur, but um, 
then, you know, there was a, a period in time there when I went from junior golf at the end of being 17 to on the pro tour at 18. So yeah. I played in a lot of junior events and two U.S. women's amateurs while I was a junior, one in St. Louis and the other one in uh, Montclair, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. But then I turned pro. So I didn't have this long kind of amateur career like a Carol Semple or, you know, some of these people that had these longer careers. So right. that's yeah. just something yeah. that uh, just kind of bypassed me. Well, let's just recap the career of Amy Alcott. Uh, as Bruce mentioned at the top, 34 pro wins, including 29 wins on the LPGA Tour, which ranks you as 18th all time, which is pretty cool. Um, Amy was a global player, which we'll talk about, although a lot of what we'll talk about are LPGA wins. But uh, but you you didn't uh, you didn't mind traveling to, to get your golf in around the world. And uh, there's probably some stories we're going to want to hear about uh uh, relative to that, like you being known as the tour bus DJ, for example, <laughs> yeah. which we'll, we'll, we'll come, we'll come back to that. But, uh, uh, as you mentioned, you joined, I think Jan uh, Stevenson gave me that title cause I would show up on these bus trips, these long bus trips in Japan and have my cassettes. I, before I flew over on Japan airlines, I'd line up the cassettes for the long bus trips and, We've got a long story, a lot of long stories about those. <laughs> so you'd put your set list together ahead of time, huh, with all your cassettes? Oh, yeah, uh, it was the age of disco. So oh, oh, There you go. <laughs> How do you forget, right? Yeah. yeah was there was dancing on the bus then, too, when you DJed? Lots of dancing on the bus, and you'd have two hours in the bus from the hotel, and then two hours or three hours coming back, and a train, and... Uh, Near the end of it, I can remember Pat Bradley saying to me, Alcott, when you don't come over on these trips anymore, that's it for me. You know, you kept us all, <laughs> you kept us all entertained. And there was somebody, I wasn't a drinker, you know, much. And, but the, a lot of those gals consumed mass quantities of beer, you know, <laughs> you'd get done, you'd, you'd Get done. You'd have been up since five, taking a bus out there. Played your round. I mean, this wasn't the it's a age. long day. Long, you know, Bruce. Long day. Yeah. Lots of beers, and there was a always a bucket bucket at the back of the bus. You know, it was, <laughs> it was crazy. You, you would get the party started then, huh? Yeah, I'd go be up at the front, and we'd be dancing. And there's a famous story about. We had a lip syncing contest, um, and Kathy Whitworth didn't have a partner. You know, people would pair up with their friends, yeah. so yeah. they'd pick a song, and you'd come up with the microphone at the bus, and you'd sing whatever, you know, whatever your <laughs> song was, and then everybody would kind of judge you, and uh, and then they we'd vote. Well. The last singing group was Kathy Whitworth and Amy Alcott in What's Love Got to Do With It. So we'd have <laughs> Tina Turner, you know, we'd start start that, and Whit would hold the microphone, and, I mean, to this day, 
to this day, everybody remembers Alcott and Whitworth and what's love got to do with it. Um, uh, and I had picked Kathy when I was un- inducted in the Hall of Fame. Um, historically, I wanted her to be my person who... Uh, presenter. Yeah. Presenter. And we had a big laugh about that. Just, you know, a lot of history with... Um, you know, an older player, a, a, a player who's historic in golf history with all her wins. Oh, yeah, but, isn't that um, the truth? A real, a real piece of work. And but she, there was that part of wit that you know we used to joke with her about her hair. You know, because every hair was in place, and she probably used a can of hairspray. And uh, <laughs> there was a, a Clairol ad on TV about a about a. A wind tunnel test. Try this new Clairol product. Your hair won't move an inch. And we used to joke with Wit about, oh, that's Kathy Whitworth, man. Every hair was in place. It was like a, it was like a crash helmet, you know. <laughs> uh, I think I saw her hair move. It must be a five club wind. Yeah. <laughs> so uh. yeah, I miss those times. They were all pretty, pretty funny. Well, you came out of the box uh, hot, as you said, because uh, joining in 75, you were the rookie of the year. You you won uh, right away. You won the Ver Trophy in 1980, winner of five majors, which I I know we'll talk about. Um, We probably don't have time to talk about all of your LPGA wins, but we certainly want to pick out the highlights. And so you mentioned your first which has got to be quite gratifying uh, uh, yeah. in your third tournament. The 1975 Orange Blossom Classic, as you talked about, you won that by one over Sandra Post. Yes. And didn't know how I stood par five hole and hit a terrible chip shot, third shot, which left me a 25-footer, but I had no clue. You know, I'm. it was actually my 19th birthday, yeah. February 22nd. And I, I, I told my caddy I didn't want to know where I was standing. It was in the earlier days of the tour where they didn't have a whole lot of scoreboards. And I um, uh, hit a bad chip, and I could, I had this. There's something about the feel, the energy that I knew it was important. I knew this putt was important, and I, I knocked that putt in the hole. And I had no idea I won. And I kind of looked at my caddy and the crowd went crazy, you know. <laughs> so I mm. won and uh, beat her and I think Sally Little by by a shot or two. And it was just so amazing to do that. I think I shot 70, 70, 68 or 70, 68, 70. I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was a, a very memorable moment. So how big was that first check? $5,000. $35,000 total purse. The smallest on the LPGA, but the oldest event at the time on the LPGA, kind of put on by the local Rotary Club. And Hmm. uh, I remember clinching that check and flying back to Los Angeles, and my godfather, had sent, I was met at the LA airport by a mariachi band. It was very <laughs> memorable. My godfather, Leo and Ethel, and my mother were there, you know, 
And I will always remember that. It was pretty, pretty amazing. Maybe, <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah. So then in 76, you just jumped right out again and won yeah. the LPGA Classic and also finished off the year, won at Colgate too. So two victories in 76. Yeah, 76 was in uh, Forest Gate in New Jersey. And um, this golf course that had in uh, had these huge mounds everywhere that looked like the greens were like buried elephants. It was crazy. And again, I played just great. And I laugh at this turn at that tournament, and because it kind of made the headlines. Um, so I played the last hole again. I was, I think. Um, tied with Jane Blaylock on the last hole and hit a drive down there. And I was in the fairway, and I remember one of my original sponsors from Riviera was a character named Bob William. And Bob William owned a, uh, he was a multifaceted person who was involved in developing the camera mount on a, uh, for, for um, photography, or, you know, for all those Steve McQueen movies he was a very interesting guy, but he was in the pasta business. And he used to, earlier life, I'm rambling on, he managed like Betty Grable and George Raff. And they called him the driving range king at Riviera. And he was <laughs> one of my sponsors. And he had so many great stories he would instill in me. Like he poured me my first scotch. I had my first scotch at the bar at Riviera with him. He introduced me to scotch. Um <laughs> He used to write for the L.A. Herald, interviewed Ben Hogan, uh, you know, had this famous quote from Ben Hogan, fight out fear and timidity with anger when you're nervous, fight out fear and timidity with anger. Mm. And as I'm yeah. walking up to this ball in the middle of the fairway at Forsgate, I've got like 150 to the pin and the pins in the front. You couldn't be long. You'd have a tough downhill butt. I hit this incredible shot in there five feet under the hat uh, under the pin and made it and the crowd totally went crazy i mean and the tournament was called the coca-cola classic but it was sponsored by the archdiocese of trenton so the galleries were enormous because the catholic church and all these parishes had gone out and sold tickets and got everybody to show up all over new jersey at this golf tournament and so we had enormous galleries for the LPGA Tour in 1976. And I'm on the 18th green with the Monsignor and the local president of Coca-Cola and whatever, and they being interviewed by the New York Times, a guy named Gordon White. And they said, Miss Alcott, you're just a, such a young person. What are you going to do with all this money, this $15,000? And I looked right out at everybody, all the priests, and I said, well, I'm going to give it to the United Jewish Appeal. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so anyway, that made the New York Times. And, um, uh, you know, it was just one of my more memorable wins. I'm sorry to ramble on about that. No, that's no. great. That, that's that, a great that, story. That, making the, that was the quote of the year in Golf Digest. I mean, at the very end of the year, they had that <laughs> in there. Gordon White from the New York Times quoted Miss Alcott or whatever. Oh, um, that's great. 
What else did yes. I win in 76, Bruce? Well, you, you went to Manila and, and oh. won Donna Capone. Yes, I won the Colgate Far East Open there, and oh. I think I was there a few times, and that was quite a win. We, A lot of the players had gone, uh, were taken there by the Colgate people to the on the boat with uh, President Marcos, but I did get to play one hole with him. I wasn't part of that group, but I did go to the palace and went to the bathroom and made a wrong turn and ended up, I'm pretty sure it was in uh, Imelda's. Uh, shoe closet? Shoe closet. <laughs> I saw I saw more shoes than I even went with the guy. Then the guys found me and came in with guns. And I said, I think I made the wrong turn for the upstairs bathroom. <laughs> there was a cocktail party going on downstairs. And I, I don't know, I went up the stairs. I remember it was like a green silk, like a silk. And I said, up, oh, I'm out of here. I'm sorry. And there were <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of shoes. So, Yeah, for our younger listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, this was the yeah. first lady of the Philippines, Imelda Marcos, and she was, yeah, the, the story goes, just had thousands and thousands of pairs of shoes. But you're the first person I've ever met in person here that's actually seen the collection. I yeah. saw them. Yeah, I actually yeah. saw them. I have a picture of Ferdinand and I myself uh under an umbrella because he came out and in the pro-am wanted to play one hole with every pro okay and um we subsequently colgate brought us back there a couple more times we we played there but that was a that was an amazing win and um a very uh, hospitable country it was really great to to go there and thank you to the guy that that I mean, David Foster, who was kind of put women's golf on the map, and he, he was sure the CEO did. of Colgate and got decided with, obviously, with Dinah Shore, brought Dinah Shore in and created the Colgate Dinah Shore that became the precursor to the, you know, the Kraft Nabisco, the ANA, and now the, now the Chevron Championship. So he right. was... Yep. He put a lot of money into women's sports and women's skiing, and he's, to my mind, one of the more unheralded people in, in golf, women's golf history. Put him in ads. Definitely. And he had a lot of fun with us, too. Yeah, well, the 1970s yeah. were an important decade for, for women's golf, weren't they? Because that is the, the time that corporate sponsorship sort of uh, came in on the scene. I think the total purses – in 1970, was uh, just over four hundred thousand dollars, and by 1980, the prize money was five million dollars. So their involvement certainly made a difference. Oh yeah, yeah, and that there, there, then a lot of companies, McDonald's, and you could go down the list of the companies that kind of come in and out of golf sponsorship. It helps to have a a CEO that loves golf. They don't love golf, then that kind of fades away, and another one. We've been fortunate enough, and the game has grown, and women's golf has grown. That they they realize that now women's golf is a, a very good buy. And now in 2022, I mean, um, you know, you're not looking at women's golf under a microscope in the back the way my mother used to say. They're only listing the top five scores, and I have to look under a microscope to see if your name is there and so, I mean, I think back of the players way before me, but this was the 70s, and now 
2022, it's, you know, the tour is, uh, this is really the time without really talking about it too much. This is a great time for women. It's mm-hmm. just kind of yeah. happened. And you really can't complain that you're not getting what you deserve or whatever. If you go out and play well, uh, there's sponsors out there. They're putting money into women's golf. And now is, uh, now is the time for, Women's golf is really growing all over the United States and the world. I mean, the game has gotten so global, it's crazy. So uh, you look at the LPGA scores, and there's almost every country listed there. True. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word. And tell your friends, until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Went straight down the middle, quite a way.